0: Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB One package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. Cambridgesavings.com/slash CSB One.
1: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We fool ourselves about lots of things. By and large, we think we're smarter, more civic-minded, and fairer than we really are. The good part about that, I guess, is that we aspire to be smart and civic-minded and fair. The bad part is that we can keep our real selves hidden behind this sort of beautiful facade because we know what's acceptable to show to people and what isn't. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is an economist who has spent years studying our real selves, that somewhat less visible core that nevertheless is an important part of who we are. Seth is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times and he's also author of the new book, Everybody Lies big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. And I should mention before we get into this, that there will be some pretty frank discussion about both race and sex. So on that note, Seth, welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Kara.
1: So how did you get started thinking search engines, like Google searches mostly, that's the key, that that what people put in that search box really reveals a lot about um, who they are, even like the person that they are that they keep hidden
0: well about five years ago I was doing research when Barack Obama was president on uh, the effects that race had in the 2008 election whether a lot of people did not support Obama because he was black and a lot of the evidence from surveys said that this was a tiny factor very very few people uh, cared that Obama was black Mm. we were living in a post-racial society if people remember that 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 time period Uh, and I Uh, found this new data from Google, and I was basically just shocked at what I saw, the uh, amount of racist searches that people made. And I found that basically these correlate almost perfectly with parts of the country where Obama did worse than other Democratic Mm. uh, candidates. So it seemed like uh, people were saying one thing and uh, doing something totally different, and online uh, seemed to be the way to to find this truth.
1: Um, When you say a racist search, what is a racist search?
0: Yeah, so it's the percent of Google searches that include the racist uh, N-word. But uh, a lot of people make searches for like N-word jokes and uh, I hate Mm. N-word, millions of these searches every year. Mm. And you get a a, a real clear map of when you see where these searches are most frequent. You get a striking map of uh, racial animus in the United States, and it's a very different map uh, from the one that I would have guessed or the one that surveys told us. Mm. Uh, I think most people think that racism is predominantly an issue in the South. That the big divide is north versus south but actually uh, the big racist divide today in the United States is not north versus south it's east versus west racism huh. is very high in many parts of Northeast in upstate New York and in industrial Michigan and in Western Pennsylvania Eastern Ohio uh, it's about as high there as anywhere so r- really there are many parts of northern America that also have these attitudes
1: but you don't see as many searches with the n-word in Utah or in California
0: yeah exactly Really, pretty much west of the Mississippi, it drops pretty substantially.
1: You also say, um, that when you were looking at the Obama election, and as you said, you know, we, we, in the media, uh, you know, I remember 2008 so well, and, and obviously into the beginning of 2009, because that was the inauguration, people were talking about this idea of like, have we entered a post racial America? Um, but you say. That while that was happening in full view, right, on, on TV and stuff, the white nationalist organization Stormfront had this surge in popularity after Obama was elected. Explain that and like what you saw in the data there.
0: Yeah. So Stormfront is, uh, is a site that I had never actually heard of Stormfront. I found Stormfront because I was – well, people make up embarrassing Google searches. One of the embarrassing Google searches I make is for my own name a lot. And I was searching for my own name, and I found that uh, this website, Stormfront, was discussing my work. Uh, and I had no idea what oh. it was, but it was a, a white nationalist site. They were they keep track of Jewish writers in the media. Mm. So I, I kind of became interested in and started studying who joins this site, when people joined this site. So it's another window into hate. Uh, it used to be that hate groups were offline, and we didn't really know very much about them. They had these secretive meetings. Uh, the KKK had secretive meetings in back rooms, and we really didn't know who joined them, why people joined them. But now uh, hate is moving online to sites like Stormfront, and we're a- able to analyze the data and learn a lot more about what causes people to join such a, such a site. And one of the things that led to a big surge in this in membership was uh, the election of Obama.
1: Hmm. You also talk about, in thinking about race, you also talk about this moment in um, 2015 right after uh, the shootings in San Bernardino. Where President Obama gives a speech and he says, you know, we're going to do everything we can to fight back against terrorism. But it's really important uh, to remember that Muslim Americans are patriots, that Muslims around the world are very often the people who are the victims of terrorism. Explain the effect of that speech as far as you can tell from essentially Google searches.
0: Yeah. So there's a, a corner of Google searches that is really, really, really nasty kind of extreme searches. Uh, people make searches such as kill Muslims. And we've shown that these searches actually predict hate crimes. So when these searches are high, they're going to be more uh, attacks at mosques or beating up of Muslim Americans. So these are kind of crazy people, right? These are not necessarily the most sane members of society, people who are searching uh, something like kill Muslims, but they're not a part of society that we've traditionally studied very much. They don't go into uh, Harvard psychology labs to be studied. Uh, they're not really uh, so easy to track. but. Uh, because of Google searches, we can actually see basically minute by minute uh, what causes people to have these violent thoughts to the extent that they, they make these uh, crazy searches on Google. And one of the things I did study was this speech that Obama made after the San Bernardino attack. What I found, I was working with Evan Soltas then at Princeton University, and what we found is that Obama gave this speech that was very, very well received. He talked about uh, how it's the responsibility of Americans to reject hate and to support freedom instead of fear and to reject uh, religious tests for allowing uh, people into this country. And it was a very well received speech. Uh, The New York Times loved it. The Los Angeles Times loved it. Pretty much everybody gave it rave reviews. Uh, But we found by actually tracking these searches that basically every time Obama made one of these comments, there was a huge explosion in these nasty searches such as kill Muslims, or I hate Muslims, or Muslims mm. are evil, or die Muslims, or, or, or a lot of these crazy searches, which really suggests that sometimes rhetoric that we think is doing well and think is doing the job uh, actually backfires. We did notice one line in that speech, uh, Obama talked about how Muslim Americans are athletes and uh, men and women who die in uniform protecting this country. And right after that line, there was a a big surge in searches for Muslim athletes and Muslim soldiers. So people became curious, who are these people? And then Mm. they started tweeting about how Shaquille O'Neal was uh, a Muslim athlete. They hadn't known that before. So we suggested that maybe uh, instead of lecturing people uh, to make them less angry, which maybe will just backfire, you might want to provoke people's curiosity and change how they think about a group. Uh, after we wrote that article, you know, it was in the New York Times, it got a lot of attention. I think perhaps somebody in, in the Obama White House read our article because uh, a few weeks later he gave another speech at a, a Baltimore mosque. And again, that this was uh, nationally televised, got a lot of attention, uh, but this time Obama stopped with the lectures and the talk of responsibility and instead uh, really doubled down or quadrupled down on, on uh, the, the curiosity. So he talked about how Muslim Americans built skyscrapers in Chicago and other uh, hmm. teachers and firefighters, and Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Quran. And hmm. uh, after he made this speech, uh, this, the really nasty searches kill Muslims, I hate Muslims, Muslims are evil, they went down after this speech. So it did seem this speech was a lot more uh, successful. And I think that really shows the power of uh, this data where. Uh, we could actually, you know, how to calm an angry mob is not necessarily something that has been researched very frequently. We haven't had minute by minute uh, searches on people who desire killing a group of of human beings. We now do have that data and can actually turn it into something like a science, which is pretty remarkable.
1: How accurate or how exact can you be with this data?
0: I think uh, there's definitely there're definitely limits you know i think you can see kind of broad patterns like i think it's meaningful if searches are twice as high in one place as they, as they are in another or if searches have uh, risen you know 80% in the last uh, you know year or something then that would probably be a meaningful pattern if they've gone up 1% or 2% or they're uh, you know 1% higher here then that then that might be uh, something that you'd view with more caution Uh, But I think some of the new data sources get unfairly maligned uh, as if the existing data sources are perfect, and they're clearly not, right? Uh, So like, there are lots of holes in uh, a lot of the traditional methodologies that we've been using uh, and imperfections. So uh, I don't know that there's more noise uh, in these data sources than there have been in previous data sources. And I think uh, over time, we'll probably get better at at, at learning different ways to weight the data and, Mm. and take out even more of that noise.
1: This is Innovation Hub. I'm Cara Miller, and I'm talking with Seth stevens Davidowitz, author of the book, Everybody Lies. He's also a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. So I want to shift gears quite a lot here, but still to something that people are not that honest about. And it's sex. People lie all the time about it. You found that out. And I want you to walk us through this exploration you did a little bit because the numbers are fascinating. You look at condom sales, like actual condom sales is not web searches at all. This is actual sales. And you notice that the the answers to surveys just completely do not match up with like the hard numbers in terms of what has been sold. So give me a sense of like what you found and what people are being honest and dishonest about.
0: Yeah. So if you ask uh, Amer- the general social survey, this massive academics uh, research operation asks Americans, how much sex do you have and how frequently do you use a condom? And uh, if you do the math based on those answers, then American men say they use 1.6 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. American women say they use 1.1 1. 1 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. Uh, of course, those numbers by definition <laughs> have to be the same. So you kind of already know that that, that somebody's lying, right, because uh, there's there are only so many heterosexual sexual encounters that used a condom in a given year. Uh, so who's telling the truth? Uh, neither data uh, provided to me by Nielsen says that only 600 million condoms are sold every year so basically everybody's uh, lying about sex
1: so you've got 1.6 billion men are saying 1.6 billion women are saying 1.1 billion but really the sales are only 600 million
0: yeah okay yeah. and some of those by gay men and some of them thrown out so probably a lot even fewer are mm-hmm. actually used in, in sex now this of course does not mean that uh, people are lying about how much sex they have they may just be lying about how frequently they use a condom Uh, But if you actually look at how frequently people say that they have unprotected sex, uh, basically, if people are having as much unprotected sex as they had, uh, if you do the math, there would be a lot more pregnancies in the United States. So I think the overall evidence is that people are just lying about how much sex they're having uh, protected or unprotected. In the United States today, there's a huge uh, pressure to maybe uh, make it seem like you're having more sex than you actually are having.
1: Hmm. Can you tell why, like from searches, why it might be that people are not having as much sex as they say they are? Um, I wonder if there are clues as to why these numbers like don't match up.
0: Well, I think uh, one thing that is very striking in Google searches, and this may play some role in lack of sex, is a tremendous amount of uh, bodily insecurity around sex. Mm. Uh, so I talk about that a lot in the book, that uh, men make, uh, I think, more searches about their uh their penis than any other body part basically concerned that it's that it's that it's small and how they can make it bigger Hmm. and another one i i help people make weird searches into google the most common uh, searches men make about their uh genital organ is how big is my penis which also like it doesn't make sense that you're asking (laughs) Google that right yeah
1: probably not unless they know way more than we think
0: yeah (laughs) but uh yeah people make really weird searches on google Yeah. Uh, Uh, I wanted to call my book that, but my publisher said that 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 would that would be a tough sell. Like, mm-hmm. how big is my penis? What Google searches reveal about human
1: nature. But, it's a good title. It's a good title, but I can see why maybe I don't know bookstores wouldn't want to d- display it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so and then women have their own bodily insecurities hmm. around uh, you know all all different areas of their body. So I think mm-hmm. like. Those numbers are are staggering, the amount of searches people make uh, mm-hmm. worried about things. So I think when you have that level of anxiety, it probably uh, does make sense that there's not that much sex going on. Right. Because, uh, I think it's hard to have sex when you're that insecure about your body.
1: So when you talked about um, Obama's San Bernardino speech, um, you talked about ways in which this data can be used to maybe change presidential speeches so that people actually focus on the things that the president wants them to focus on, rather than have this unintended sort of backlash kind of reaction. Are there other ways, specific ways that you can think of to use this data to help improve the world?
0: There's one example that's a little silly, but I think it's actually really, really important. When I talked about bodily insecurities, uh, I talked about how men are obsessed with the size of their genitals, which is not so surprising. Uh, but there was a surprise that was among the biggest concerns that women have uh, that I definitely did not know about, uh, which was women make a lot of searches uh, concerned about vaginal odor. When I first did this research, I kind of wrote it about it as kind of a joke. It kind of made me chuckle. and made other people chuckle. But then I got a lot of uh, emails from people in sexual education. And they're like, is there a way we can incorporate this data? If you actually look at these searches, a lot of these searches are from like, 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old young girls Hmm. who literally think their lives are over over this issue. They're paranoid. They're really that this is like the worst thing that could ever happen to to a human being. And this isn't really talked about necessarily in sex ed because people didn't really know uh, how widespread this paranoia is. So I've been talking to people in sex ed about how can we incorporate some of this this research uh, into sexual education and maybe reduce the paranoia among young girls. So that's like the reason I like this example uh, is because it's this area that Is so embarrassing that it's not really talked about and we didn't know about it. But by aggregating everyone's data on Google searches where they are honest, we learn about this kind of widespread insecurity Mm. that previously uh, we didn't really know about and can uh, maybe lower this insecurity. So that's one example.
1: What did studying all this stuff – I mean it could be about sex or it could not be. But what did this teach you about common wisdom and the kind of things that – I mean, you talk about your grandmother, but the kind of wisdom that like grandmothers dispense or, you know, people who, you know, just a trusted friend would dispense, you know, sort of this conventional wisdom that people have accumulated over a lifetime of seeing relationships or seeing politics or whatever it is.
0: Well, I think, uh, yeah, I I, I talk a little bit about my grandma. I tried to make the hero of my story because I said she's kind of the original (laughs) big, big data, Uh, you know, originally, I think before. Uh, the phrase big data even existed, we we relied a lot, a lot on the elderly because they had seen so much. Uh, so they were able to kind of look at, at patterns in the same way that now a data scientist at Google or Facebook does right. uh, and make sense of them. Uh, but I do think that just in general, people are fairly off in how they think the world works just because of cognitive biases we have as well as people lying to us. So we generally get an inaccurate view of the world when we uh, listen to what people uh, tell us.
1: Hmm. Just because they've only seen so much.
0: They've only seen so much. And a lot of people are people tend to exaggerate the value of their own stories. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I talk about like what makes a relationship work. And a lot of people think that you want to have a common group of friends that you are kind of always hanging around the same people and then you don't have to go your separate ways. Uh, But actually, data from Facebook shows that makes a relationship not work. Uh, If you're hanging around with the same group of friends, you're more likely to break up. Hmm. Uh, It's more, it's more, you're more likely to stay together if you have separate circles of friends. Hmm. Uh, So there are a lot of things, just kind of over and over again, where the intuition or the traditional advice that uh, people have told us is wrong. And I think there is, you know, there is so much uh, dishonesty. I think I just view the world totally differently after looking at this data than I did beforehand. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about anxiety in the in the in the book and. I'm from the uh, New Jersey, like New York area, and I've always kind of like made jokes about being very neurotic and how a- anxious I am, and uh, <laughs> you know, like you kind of like you model yourself on, on like Woody Allen and Larry David, right. and of, like neurotic Jews. <laughs> You're know, like, oh, that, you know, that's me. I'll make the same jokes, and people always laughed and like, oh, yes, that's so anxious. But like when you actually look at the data, and a-, a lot of the data that I've been looking at, particularly Google searches, like New York City and Jewish people do not seem to have particularly high levels of anxiety. Like there's much more. <laughs> There's much more anxiety in, like, Kentucky and upstate New York. I think there are more Woody Allens in Kentucky than in New York City. They just don't make movies about their, their neuroses. So that kind of just totally blew my mind hmm. of how I see the world. And now I'm just like, oh, everybody's anxious. Just some people are more, like, for cultural reasons, make a bigger deal out of it and, and talk about it more. But I, th- I don't I don't really think... Uh, There's an unusual level of anxiety among the circle I hang out with, which is mostly New York (laughs) Jews.
1: That's interesting. There's an untapped movie-making market in Kentucky, is what you're saying.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, that that might be (laughs) it. I think it's just. I think. I I think just in general, like, there's so much of the world is just like our view is just biased by what people say, right? uh, And what what's socially acceptable. At some point, it became acceptable for. New York Jews to talk about how anxious and neurotic they were. That became funny, so mm-hmm. everybody started talking about it, where it never really became uh, socially acceptable for people in Kentucky to talk about this, so they didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then everyone just assumed, oh, there's all this anxiety among you know urban intellectuals, which I don't think, now I think is just not true at all.
1: Seth stevens Davidowitz is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times and author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth, thank you so much. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Kara. Searching, 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 searching,
1: searching, searching, searching. On our website, we've got links to some of the columns that Seth wrote for the New York Times, including a fascinating one on sex. And we've got a part of our conversation that we couldn't fit in here about what Google searches show us about who is gay and whether they want to reveal that publicly. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Support
0: for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.